Welcome back to Women Rule. I'm Louisa Savage, an editorial director at Politico. And today I'm hosting this episode with our guest, actress Nazanin Boniati. Nazanin is probably best known for her role as a CIA analyst in the hit Showtime drama Homeland. She's also been on the sitcom How I Met Your Mother and has starred in a few feature films, including the most recent adaptation of Ben-Hur. But we have her on the podcast to talk about her role outside of Hollywood as a human rights activist focused on Iran. She feels a deep personal connection to the country that she was born in, the country that her parents fled when she was just a small child. And she's very passionate about her humanitarian work. We have a responsibility every time we're at the negotiation table with this country, with Iran, to call them out on, great, you want to accomplish a nuclear deal, you want that to stay in place, fantastic, but let's not overlook the human rights issue because there are people suffering. And that's all become particularly relevant because just last week, President Donald Trump spoke before the United Nations General Assembly. And he seemed to raise questions, even deride the nuclear deal that was negotiated by the Obama administration and Iran. Frankly, that deal is an embarrassment to the United States. And I don't think you've heard the last of it. Believe me. We spoke with Nazanin this week about what's happening in Iran, about women's rights in that country, and how one actress is trying to make a difference. We also talked about what it's like to be a Middle Eastern actress in Hollywood today, about Hollywood's issues with the representation of women, and why she feels compelled as an actress to be political at a time when a lot of people are telling actors, athletes, to just stay out of politics. So stay tuned for that. On the Women Rule podcast, we bring you backstage conversations with women leaders, the big bosses in politics and policy. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and rate us and leave a review. And please share our episodes on social media. And you can follow me on Twitter at Louisa C.H. Savage. That's Louisa with a Z. Women Rule is produced by Politico in partnership with our founding partners, Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. And now a word from our presenting sponsor, Chevron. When more girls go into science, technology, engineering, and math, the whole world benefits. With support from families, schools, policymakers, and businesses, girls can do remarkable things with STEM. Chevron is proud to join Women Rule in empowering the next generation of female leaders. Now, let's get to our interview with actress and activist Nazanin Boniati. Well, welcome, Nazanin, to the Women Rule Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you are an actress, an activist, and you're here today in Washington, D.C. Tell us what you're doing here. I'm here lobbying the Hill on human rights issues in Iran. We're basically meeting with um, uh, members of the Tom Lantis Human Rights Commission, And my hope is that we raise the human rights issue and what's happening in Iran, because I feel like there are several other issues with regards to Iran, namely the Iran nuclear deal that have overshadowed human rights. And I think it's the most pertinent topic to solving the Middle East problem. Well, let's pause on that. So we're at really an inflection point in American policy toward Iran right now in this new administration. We have this deal with Iran that President Obama made um, to um, release them from economic pressures while they reduce their nuclear activities. Um, but 
Donald Trump has said, President Trump has said, this is a terrible deal. What would happen to human rights in Iran, in your opinion, if this deal gets torn up? I think it's a very complex issue, but sort of in a nutshell, I think that I think for the longest time, the nuclear issue has overshadowed human rights. And why do I say that? I say that because the hardliners in Iran are fully aware that um, if they solve the nuclear issue and they get rid of the standoff, the nuclear standoff with the U.S., the global attention will shift back onto human rights in Iran. That's the last thing they want. So what I want everyone to be aware of in America and Europe is that extremism, we know this, extremism breeds extremism. And, you know, harsh rhetoric from D.C. only serves to embolden the hardliners in Iran. And the consequence of that is greater repression for the Iranian people. Mm. If you were sitting down right now with President Trump, what, what would you say to him? What do you want him to understand about Iran? You know, the first thing I want to do is it's, I feel, frankly, I feel encouraged that the administration has recertified the Iran deal twice already. And I hope that they, um, you know, that happens again in October. Um, I really want him to understand this concept of extremism breeds extremism. I really want him to understand that um, whenever he you know, uses harsh language towards uh, Iranians or Iran, um, it really does embolden those hardliners. And frankly, what you're seeing in Iran, and maybe people don't differentiate, I really would love for people to differentiate in the US administration the difference between the Iranian government and the Iranian people. You have a government that is you know, emulating or seeking to emulate North Korea. And if that's the case, you have a society that's seeking to emulate South Korea. It's the most, possibly the most anti-American government in the Middle East and possibly the most pro-American population in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about women in Iran. Um, is their situation getting worse or better, in your opinion? Well, the situation's getting worse. But I will say um, the thing that's interesting about women, I think, in Iran is that they are really at the forefront of the move toward democracy and freedom. Um, what you've seen since the 1979 Islamic Revolution is that women are now twice as educated, but they have half the rights. And then couple with that the fact that we're so much more interconnected today than we've ever been globally. So we have, you know, the internet and you have um, applications in Iran, like 40 million plus Iranians have access to the Telegram app, the messaging app. Um, of course, there's Facebook and Twitter, and um, we're so much more interconnected. Uh, there's also things like, you know, uh, satellite TV in Iran is banned. Uh, state TV is heavily censored, so a lot of people have this thirst for knowledge. What's going on in the world? Women are twice as educated, yet they have half the rights. That creates a climate for people like women, like Masi Ali Najad, who's created My Stealthy Freedom campaign. You've got women like Nasrin Sutudeh, um, prominent human rights attorney. You've got um, prominent human rights activist Nagas Mohammadi. All these people who are being... Um, prosecuted, uh, persecuted in Iran, but really are at the forefront of this movement toward democracy and freedom. And that's why we've, we dub, we have a word for, Iran, um, for these fearless women in Iran. It's called shirzan or lioness because of their sort of fearlessness and tenacity in the mm. face of repression. Well, you're here because of one of those 
lionesses. Can you tell us the story of the the other Nazanine that you're here to talk sure. about? Sure. And, and then her case, she's actually just not politically active at all. She's uh, she works for the charitable arm of uh, the Thompson Reuters Foundation. Um, she was just visiting Iran. She's a dual citizen, um, a Brit- British Iranian dual citizen. She. At the time she was visiting Iran last year in 2016, I believe it was February 2016, she took her 22-month-old baby, Gabriella, to visit her parents for the first time, to meet her grandparents. And when she was leaving Iran two months later, um, her baby was torn from her arms. Her passport and Gabriella's passport were confiscated. And Nazanin Zaghi... At the airport? At the airport. Mm-hmm. Nazanin Zaghi Radcliffe was thrown into Ebin prison, which is a political prison in Iran, the most notorious political prison in Iran. And for f- approximately five weeks, she, had, she was in solitary confinement. She had no idea why she was arrested. There wasn't a trial at that time. There, wasn't, there, there was no reason for her to be in jail. She's completely innocent. She's not an activist, a human rights activist in, a, in any way, shape or form. She's never criticized the Iranian government. She's never done anything to offend them. And after five weeks, they finally gave her access, gave her visitation. Gabriella visited her her baby, and um, she finally had access to a lawyer. There was a trial, a sham trial, um, in August 2016, in which she was sentenced to five years in prison on very vague um, national security charges, which is very typical of what Iran does to uh, political prisoners uh, and prisoners of conscience. And um, it was appealed. And in January 2017, the appeal um, didn't go through. It was basically she, the, the charge stayed. And five she's years. still there. She's prison. still in prison. She's um, gone through bouts of severe depression. She was recently given access to a psychiatrist. Um, and to make all of this worse, her, her British husband, Richard Ratcliffe, who's been campaigning, campaigning nonstop for the past year and a half that she's, I think it's over 530 days at this point, she's been imprisoned. And, 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 What's horrific about this situation is every time she visits, goes, is taken to see her lawyer or goes to a trial or, first of all, at her own trial, she wasn't allowed to speak, which is preposterous. And she's blindfolded every time she's taken to a trial or to see her lawyer. And Richard has been tirelessly campaigning for her freedom. I was actually just at the um, UN Mission of Iran with him during the UN General Assembly uh, where he attempted, I accompanied him to, to the mission to uh, attempt to deliver a letter to um, the UN mission of Iran. And of course, they didn't come down to pick it up. They sent us on our way and they had reception take it. We have no idea if it got to them. But what I want them to know is this woman is innocent and she has a, uh, now a three-year-old baby, child. So this is an impossible situation. Essentially, Gabriella, their baby, is also now a hostage in Iran because she's not allowed to leave. Um, Richard's not allowed to go see um, her, his child or his wife. This family family has essentially been torn apart. That's It's a heartbreaking story. And these are the stories that are all too common in Iran. Um, women don't have to have been politically active necessarily to be in these situations. Some of them are, some of them aren't. But, my goodness, it has to stop. What's at the core of this? What is the regime getting out of targeting women and men who oftentimes are dual citizens? They're Iranian, in this case British, sometimes they're American, Canadian, others. 
um, in most of these cases, there's no basis for any kind of criminal charge. What is motivating this? I mean, it's a hardline. Um, it's a hardline element in Iran's government that is driving this repression. But I mean, I want to be clear to anyone in power in the U.S. and in Europe that the people who are accessible, you know, the Javad Zarifs, the foreign minister of Iran, the people who do come here for the UN General Assembly and speak to American officials, have very little power. The people who have wield power, like the supreme leader, are inaccessible. So we're in this sort of between a rock and a hard place. We have no access to the people who actually have the ability to change the situation. Um, So what kind of leverage then does the United States have? You're going to the Hill, you're meeting with members. What are you asking them to do? What can they do? I'm asking them to support the Iranian people because I think the Iranian people don't want to be repressed. Mm, But what does support mean in this day and age? Support means vocally expressing not disdain for Iran. It's very important. Rhetoric matters. I think it's important that when we speak and we make speeches, we don't say the Iranians. We say the Iranian government and we differentiate between the government and the people because uh, as much as people think that the Iran, well, they revolt. Look, they did it in 79. Why don't they just go into the streets and revolt and they'll get their freedom? What happened in 79 was there was a revolution without democracy. Right now, what the Iranian people are seeking is a democracy without revolution because uh, they are uncertain that, I mean, there's a complicated history between America and Iran, Europe and UK and Iran. Um, And I think the Iranian people really do want to feel empowered to do this on their own in the right way, as opposed to sort of interference, foreign interference. Um, So instead of this sort of, we'll come over there and bomb you, or... You know, if you don't, this sort of bully tactic, I would like to see um, that all targeted at the government and this sort of uh, mass support for the Iranian people to energize them to say, we will, you know, speak out, we will support you. And if you make the first move, you'll have our support. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think, looking back at cases where people were released from Evin prison, um, were foreign governments at all influential for an activist like yourself? Uh, What does it take to get a result? It's important to shame the Iranian government. I do think they they care about that. They care and they pay attention. Nazanin's case has become a very high-profile case. Um, I I don't know what would have happened if we didn't sort of put this in the public eye as much as, you know. You know, we created a... um, A good anecdote, I suppose, would be Richard Ratcliffe and I created a little... um, vigil for Nazanin outside the UN mission of Iran when they rejected our, you know, they didn't come down to collect the, the letter from Richard. We just decided to put a candle and a few pictures of Nazanin stand there and take her photo. Security came down and said, sorry, we just got a call, I'm assuming from the mission of Iran, asking you to leave the premises as a private, private property. We know you're outside the building, but this is private property, so please leave. And all I could think of is what threat could we possibly be with full photographs of this woman? Nazanin Zahari Radcliffe, and her baby, taking photographs with a candle, peacefully standing there. And it reminded me of the fact that they're horrified. It's such a a PR nightmare for them to have these harsh realities thrown in their face. 
they don't want that. They want to be portrayed as, well, we're trying to be, you know, we're, we're not a pariah. We're not a pariah state. We really are trying to get along with the world. And I think what needs to happen is we have a responsibility every time we're at the negotiation table with this country, with Iran, to call them out on, great, you want to accomplish a nuclear deal. You want that to stay in place. Fantastic. But let's not overlook the human rights issue because there are people suffering. Uh, there's four to 500 political prisoners in Iran at any given time. And I think if, if people in Iran know that we stand with them and it's not just about our own um, protection and, and securing the nuclear deal, I think people will be energized to speak out and stand up for themselves and others. Is the Trump administration and President Trump making your job harder or your job easier? I think any time you have issues at home that you're dealing with, it sort of becomes harder to speak of human rights issues overseas. I would like to see a time where um, we, we sort of find some common ground in the U.S. and we start working toward resolutions and not, um, I mean, uh, politics right now in the U.S. Is, is extremely chaotic and divided. And... Every time I mention Iran, it's sort of the answer I get is, well, we have enough problems at home. Let's focus on those. Fair enough. But that doesn't bode well for Iranian human rights. Mm -hmm. Tell me a bit about how you came to this activism, to embracing your voice on the political stage. You're, you're an actress. You've been on television, in movies. There is a backlash, it seems, right now in the country and an uncertainty about whether whether we welcome people who aren't in politics to um, embrace a role in politics. We were seeing right now um, with the NFL uh, being told, just play sports, stay out of politics. Um, how did you find your voice in this issue? I unfortunately, fortunately, was born into the situation. I, I mean, I was born in the direct aftermath of the uh, Islamic revolution in Iran, in Tehran. And uh, my, par my parents, my dad in particular, was very politically active. Um, and I was 20 days when my parents were forced to move or escape the revolution and move to London. Uh, they were political refugees. So it's in my blood. I, you know, I think every time I think about what my parents sacrificed to take me to London and give me a, a fresh start or, a, you know, a great future, um, they didn't want to raise a daughter in a social and political climate that was repressive toward women and girls. They really wanted me to have every opportunity in the world and to, to succeed and thrive. And I, I often think about what would, have my future, what would my future have been had they not made that decision. Uh, my father quite possibly would have been at the very least persecuted, um, at, at the worst, executed. Um, and I would have been one of those women who hated the situation I was in and yet, you know, struggled to find a voice. And I think it's important having, as someone who's grown up in um, the UK and, and has now an American citizen, I live in the US, I think I can't because of everything my parents went through and I've heard their stories take democracy for granted. And there's this great Martin Luther King quote that I keep going back to, but injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And 
we can't think that just because it's happening way over there that it won't land on our doorstep because we know that it, uh, you know, it very well might and possibly is. So, um, yeah, I think it's important to stay vigilant because, I, you know, you talk to, to women in Iran and they, despite the greatest risks, personal risks, they're willing to sacrifice everything to stand up for their rights. And I think here I am. I'm an actress. I'm happy. I'm doing what I love. Uh, I don't need a personal reason. I don't need to be personally, um, you know, thrown in jail to be a voice for them. I, I want to give them the platform. If I have a platform, I want to give them a voice. And um, that's really what drives me. It's really just as simple as not taking the democracy that we have for granted. We'll be right back with more Women Rule. But first, a word from our presenting sponsor, Chevron. When more girls go into science, technology, engineering, and math, the whole world benefits. With support from families, schools, policymakers, and businesses, girls can do remarkable things with STEM. Chevron is proud to join Women Rule in empowering the next generation of female leaders. On this podcast, we love to talk with women about the backstage stories, what really goes on behind the scenes in their lives and in their intersections with politics and policy. So talk to us a bit about Hollywood and being an actress who is also a political activist who's also young and beautiful and all the stereotypes that that come with that um what has that been like for you well thank you <laughs> um you know when I first I started in my mid-20s I have a degree in biology I was going to go to med school so I when I started there were a lot of naysayers they said things like well you that's really too late to start acting um you know you're Iranian you have a British accent what are we supposed to do with you um, there really wasn't anyone like me out there. So, and even though it was in the post nine eleven climate, um, you know, the, the, the types of roles that were coming out were really all sort of negative uh, depictions of Middle Easterners, and basically all terrorist roles, or terrorists, what or human shields, or you know, um, you know, voiceless women. And having been to Iran, having heard these stories, being very connected to um, Iranians, and I have having relatives in Iran, made me realize that I I know that Iranian what Iranian women are like, and they are fearless and they're tenacious. And I I thought this is so wrong that we're being depicted in this sort of subservient, demure way. Um, there is a real fire in, um, in Iranian women um, because of, I just because because of history, because of what they've been through. Um, they got the right to vote in 63, 1963 in the White Revolution, some, something like 40 plus years after um, American women got the right to vote. There's been it's recent history and it's sort of in our blood to, to fight for our rights. Um, and so the depictions that I was seeing really were disheartening and Auditions that would come my way were very disheartening. It was really hard for me to initially get representation, to be honest, because, again, I didn't fit into any sort of obvious... It was hard for you to get an agent. Agent, yeah, agent, What did they say manager. Um, Again, those things like, you know, you you look ethnic, you sound British. Um, What what does that mean? You know, and I would say, I would always express in meetings that I, I love period pieces. And people would often say, well, that's reserved for 
for Caucasians. So really, you can't. And I thought, do people honestly think that period pieces are only for Caucasian people? Do they think that there is no history in other cultures? Do people think that, you know, um, that I couldn't place, for example, a Spanish person? You know, there are all these assumptions that people make, you know, that a period piece is Elizabethan or, you know, something that, you know, William Shakespeare wrote. Or, and it just, it, it was just mind-boggling to me that there, there, was, there wasn't this sort of vision of what could be. Um, and I find in Hollywood a lot of the times you have to really present what the person is looking for because it's hard for them to, to sort of, even though it's a, uh, it's a industry of creatives and people who should have a lot of vision and a lot of people do. There are tons of talented people in Hollywood. But it's it's funny that you must almost have to spoon, spoon feed that concept of this is who I am, package yourself in the way that you want them to see you and sort of spoon feed that. Um, so what was the breakthrough for you then to go from, to get over all that resistance? I think for me it was finding roles that, um, I mean, look, an actor has to work and you have to make money. So there were obviously times where it wasn't just about choosing the roles that I was super passionate about. But, for example, How I Met Your Mother, Nora, her name's Nora. They never talk about where she's from um, or her ethnicity or ethnic background. She sounds like me. She obviously looks like me. Um, and there you go. It was my first time where I thought, wow, I just won a role that was open to every ethnicity. They chose me. Um, and that felt good because it wasn't, they didn't have a specific type they were looking for. They just said it could be anyone. And literally I saw girls audition for it who were of every ethnicity and race, but it felt like a sweet victory just to be playing someone not depending on my ethnicity for it, but just being a woman. What is the gatekeeper here? Is it the um, the writers or is it the casting agents? Like, where do you assign that responsibility? Um, writers, producers, directors, casting offices, studio execs. Um, but more so, I think we need those voices in those positions. So we need um, ethnic minorities and you know women in those roles because those are the, that's the only way that we're going to overcome this issue it's representation and you know for me the show that I'm currently doing counterpart the thing that I absolutely love about it is um, we have such a, a wonderfully diverse writers room um, racially and um, you know we I think actually the women outnumber the men currently um, and you know, we've got... Um, and what difference does it make to have women in the writer's room from well, your perspective? It, it's about perspective. It's precisely perspective. It's about what you bring to the table. Uh, a man can absolutely write for a woman. A woman can absolutely write for a man. But there is a unique sort of take on things that a woman can bring that a man can only sort of uh, gather secondhand. So it's, it's a life experience. It's... Um, and, and also, I think the way a woman would write for a woman is, um, you know, we need champions of women. And not to say that men, there are plenty of men who are champions of women, but, um, and I respect and admire them, but I, I think it's important to have that equality, you know, mm. equal voice. Let's talk about Homeland for yeah. a minute. So here we are in Washington. We're all obsessed with this show. 
Um, I'm a huge fan, and I've been watching it for years with my husband, who um, covers national security legal policy. So every time Carrie Matheson, the CIA agent played by Claire Danes, does yeah. something the FBI ought to do, he jumps <laughs> off the sofa and yells at the TV. Yeah. <laughs> We're all dissecting the, yeah. um, the accuracy of this show. But nonetheless, it, it really um, has emerged as, as sort of an iconic show of the post-9-11 world, and yet it's very controversial in the way that it has represented particularly Muslims. Um, and, and you had an interesting role on that show um, as a CIA agent who's wearing hijab. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about what that was like and what you tried to do with that role? Yeah, I mean, I find I was blessed to play Farah Shirazi because I think it was a groundbreaking role. I do think that other shows after that sort of, based on the success of that character, sort of try to emulate um, that kind of depiction of, of a Muslim woman who was outspoken and strong and stood for what she believed in. And, um, you know, I, I, I understand the argument that Muslims aren't exact, exactly um, positively depicted in the show. Um, I do, and I empathize with that. Um, it's a show about espionage and politics, Unfortunately, we live in a climate. It's also an American show about espionage and politics. It's about the CIA. Um, if there were a Middle Eastern series created, I think that they would probably have their Secret Service be, you know, um, de- depict, you know, the, the foreign enemy in this in a similar way to we depict our current enemies in the U.S. Um, and. Also, I do think that the producers wholeheartedly tried to and constantly tried to show the other side of the issue. So it's not that all Muslims are terrorists. They also, it's not just the character they created, uh, Farah Shirazi, that I played, but, um, you know, along the way, every season you do see sympathetic characters, people who are not fundamentalists, who are um, actually trying to expose and stop fundamentalism. There are other characters. So I'm not the only one. And I'm people, I mean, I think Farah Shirazi stood out because she worked for the CIA, but there was Aya, the character Ayan, played by uh, Suraj Sharma um, from Life of Pi, fantastic Suraj. Um, there's a lot of sympathetic characters. So I do think they try to balance it. And I think it's an unfair criticism to say that it's um, a show that bashes mus- Muslims. Um, I find it to be very... Um, of the times it's such you know that what they do is they do their research the producers and the writers go and they they research with the CIA they actually talk to people within um, you know the CIA and officials and government people so they that's how they get their stories and they're really on you know they're on the pulse of things they're on the for- they, they get things that's why you see the story unfold and you're like well that's just what happened in real time how did they do that um, because they're doing their research I'm, I feel very blessed to have played Farah Shirazi, and I think they've probably learned a lot along the way too, you know, the writers and producers, and, um, I, but I do think it's a great show. Well, there's the, the, the critique that if you wanted to end Islamophobia, just play happier music when the, <laughs> when the Muslim characters come on instead of the, the um, I wish it was dark that, music that I, is I always... I wish it was that easy. Um, talk a little bit about... Um, you identify as a Muslim. Is that is that your religion? Um, um, I was. My dad is Zoroastrian. My mother was born into um, a Muslim family. Um, 
I was sort of raised with with tenants from both religions. Um, I would consider myself a believer in God and uh, an embracer of all faiths and and sort of I'm open to what I love about Zoroastrianism is the idea of it's very simple there's three tenets in Zoroastrianism which is think good thoughts say good words do good deeds and that one is the seed for the the next Um, and gosh if everybody lived their lives that way it's not really about religion it's just about be a good human being you know so do you feel any particular, I mean, you're cast in a lot of these sort of post 9-11 themed mm. shows, whether you're playing an Arabic person or a Persian person. I mean, do you feel any particular responsibility to illuminate those characters in a certain way, just given your background coming from a part Zoroastrian, part um, <laughs> Muslim family? Sure. I feel like um, I feel like that I felt that responsibility a, a lot more earlier in my career. And now I just think. I'm an actress. I used to shy away from ha- playing characters where my name was a Middle Eastern name because I really wanted to prove to the world that, well, I can play anyone. It doesn't have to be a Middle Eastern role. But why not embrace it? Why not say, if we want representation, then why not play Middle Eastern? Why not make the roles that could be anything Middle Eastern roles and play it with a Middle Eastern name? That's something that I've learned to embrace and I see the value in now because I feel like that's, um, you know, that's what's going to open doors is normalizing the name Layla and Farah and um, whatever else, Fatima, and instead of shying away from those names and and sort of playing um, only European Western names. Thank you, Nazanin. That's fascinating. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me.